Hello, and welcome to episode 20 of Bearskins, Bayonets and Bravery, Notes from the Guards Museum. My name is Andrew Wallace and I'm the director of the museum. I would like to start by saying thank you to those of you who have been in touch with me to wish me a speedy recovery following my brush with the dreaded cancer. You are most kind and your felicitations were very much appreciated. This week we will be continuing on our virtual tour of the museum galleries and looking at the various campaigns in which the five regiments participated during the 80s and 90s and into the early part of the new century. The first conflict we will look at is the Falklands War. The Falklands War was a 10-week undeclared war between Argentina and the United Kingdom in 1982 over the two British dependent territories in the South Atlantic, the Falkland Islands and its territorial dependency, South Georgia, and the South Sandwich Islands. The result of the war was a British victory. The conflict began on the 2nd of April when Argentina invaded and occupied the Falkland Islands, followed by the invasion of South Georgia the next day. On the 5th of April, the British government dispatched a naval task force to engage the Argentine Navy and Air Force before making an amphibious assault on the islands. The conflict lasted 74 days and ended with an Argentine surrender on the 14th of June, returning the islands to British control. In total, 649 Argentine military personnel, 255 British military personnel and three Falkland Islanders died during the hostilities. The conflict was a major episode in the protracted dispute over the territory's sovereignty. Argentina asserted and maintains that the islands are Argentine territory and the Argentine government thus characterised its military action as the reclamation of its own territory. The British government regarded the action as an invasion of a territory that had been a crown colony since 1841. Falkland Islanders, who have inhabited the islands since the early 19th century, are predominantly descendants of British settlers and strongly favour British sovereignty. Neither state officially declared war, although both governments declared the islands a war zone. Two of the five regiments of foot guards deployed in this conflict, namely the Scots Guards and the Welsh Guards. Both regiments were to suffer fatalities, but the most significant losses were in the Welsh Guards when the LSL Sir Galahad was hit in Port Pleasant. Sir Galahad was active during the Falklands War sailing from Devonport on the south coast of England on the 6th of April 1982 with 350 Royal Marines and entering San Carlos Water on the 21st of May. Three days later, on the 24th, she was attacked by A4 Skyhawks of the Argentine Air Force and was hit by a thousand-pound bomb dropped by Lieutenant Luis Alberto Severa, which did not detonate, then strafed by fighter bombers. After removal of the unexploded bomb, she carried out supply runs to Teal Inlet along with the Royal Fleet Auxiliary ship Sir Percival. On the 8th of June 1982, while preparing to unload soldiers from the Welsh Guards in Port Pleasant off Fitzroy, together with the Royal Fleet Auxiliary ship Sir Tristram, the Sir Galahad was attacked. The Sir Galahad was attacked by three Skyhawks from the Argentine Air Force each loaded with three 500-pound retarding tail bombs. 32 of the 48 people who died on the 8th of June were Welsh Guards, and scores were injured, including Simon Weston from Cardiff, 
who survived 49% burns and became one of Wales's most prominent charity campaigners. Lieutenant Colonel Johnny Rickett gave an account of the battle, revealed in previously unseen documents released to the National Archives. In it, he details the moments when the scale of the disaster became apparent as soldiers scrambled to identify how many people were lost. In the immediate aftermath of the attack, only 30% of the battalion could be accounted for. He writes, It turned out that the remains of the battalion were on board Sir Galahad. The attack is recorded in the log at 5.05pm, but he states the men should have left the vessel much earlier. They had been ready to march off at 1100 hours, but problems with landing crafts had delayed them. One of the bombs entered the hold, where the men were unloading mortar ammunition. Others were attempting to board landing craft on the tank deck or unloading ammunition. He writes, With the ship burning fiercely, casualties were either evacuated by air, direct to the nearby ship, the Uganda, or by landing craft to shore. Great bravery was shown by the helicopter pilots, the guardsmen, and some individuals had grabbed oxygen masks and entered the hold to rescue more men. By 1800 hours, the survivors were ashore near Fitzroy, where they were assisted and fed by two para. A first effort was then made at a precise headcount, but communication problems frustrated attempts to find out how many people had been evacuated to the Uganda. Also, there were an unknown number of men adrift in life rafts. All this took place under the threat of further attack. He writes, At about 1900 hours, Fitzroy was bombed again, and the battalion was overflown west to east at 1935 by two waves of two A4 Skyhawks. These planes fired at the west side of the battalion position. They were put off by the weight of fire and damage inflicted to two of the planes. The battalion was attacked yet again shortly afterwards. He writes, The next day was spent trying to find out just who was missing. I was informed that the majority of survivors were in good shape with most burns being less than 12%. There was an air search all morning for life rafts. The search was called off at 1600 hours. The casualties were flown to the nearby Uganda, but the ship was still unable to give confirmed figures. One survivor from Sir Galahad, Steve Dawkins, recalled how the vessel was hit by three 500-pound bombs. The former combat medical technician with 16 field ambulance said, It was a cock-up. We had seen Argentinian aircraft coming down Bomb Alley in Falkland Sound, and they were getting better and better at it day by day. But the officers kept arguing about what to unload first and just told us not to worry. The large-scale loss of life and the injuries brought home the human cost of the conflict. Colonel Ricketts writes, Despite assurances to the contrary, it appeared as if news that the 1st Battalion Welsh Guards were on board Sir Galahad and had been released to the media in England. Sir Galahad was hit by two or three bombs and set alight. A total of 48 soldiers and crewmen were killed in the explosions and subsequent fire. Her captain, Philip Roberts, waited until the last minute to abandon ship and was the last to leave. He was subsequently awarded the DSO for his leadership and courage. Shur Yuar Nam, a seaman of Sir Galahad, was awarded the George Medal for rescuing 10 men trapped by a fire in the bowels of the ship. During the Bluff Cove air attacks on the 8th of June, the fires were out of control. The main part of the evacuation of the injured and wounded was carried out by the ship's Royal Marine Detachment. 
the Royal Marines organised the launch of life rafts from the bow of the ship, whilst at the same time marshalling helicopters for personnel to be winched clear. Immediate first aid was given to those most seriously wounded and a triage system set up. The actions of these few Royal Marines undoubtedly saved lives on the day, and Sergeant D'Oliveira received the mention in dispatches. The Royal Marines were the last personnel to abandon ship. The same Royal Marines had also returned to the Sir Galahad to assist the Royal Navy's unexploded devices team in defusing the £1,000 bomb which crashed through the side of the ship without exploding on the 24th of May. All had returned on board as volunteers and assisted in physically carrying the unexploded bomb through to the rear tank deck where it was placed in an inflatable boat filled with packets of cornflakes to act as padding and then taken out into San Carlos water where the boat was punctured and sunk. BBC television cameras recorded images of the Royal Navy helicopters hovering in thick smoke to winch survivors from the burning ships. The bell of the Sigalhad now resides in the Falkland Islands Memorial Chapel in Pangbourne, Berkshire. On the 21st of June, the Hulk was towed out to sea and sunk by HMS Onyx using torpedoes. It is now an official war grave, designated as a protected place under the Protection and Military Remains Act. Guardsman Simon Weston was among the survivors of the attack and his story has been widely reported in television and newspaper coverage. Ten years after the Sikh Galahad was sunk, Weston was awarded an OBE. A replacement ship entered service in 1988, carrying the same name and pennant number. We have several artefacts from the campaign on display, one of which is an Argentinian pistol, which was seized by members of the Scots Guards on Mount Tumbledown. It was later presented to Lieutenant Colonel, later to become Major General, Ian Mackay Dick, who went on to become the Major General commanding the Household Division. In 2007, Guardsman Stephen Duffy and Peter McInnes from the Pipes and Drums platoon of the Scots Guards recounted their experiences. At 9pm, half an hour after the start of the diversionary attack, Major Ian D.L. Jobs G Company started its advance of nearly two miles. Reaching its objective undetected, the company found the western end of the mountain undefended and occupied it easily but later came under heavy shell fire that wounded Major D.L. Jobs in the head. Major John Kisley's left flank passed through them and reached the central region of the peak unopposed, but then came under heavy fire. The Argentinians, later learned to be of company strength, directed mortar, grenade, machine gun and small arms fire from very close range at the British company, killing three British soldiers. For four or five hours, a mixed bag of Argentinian infantry and engineers pinned the British down. To help identify the bunkers, the guardsmen fired flares at the summit. The guardsmen traded 66mm rockets and 84mm anti-tank rounds with the Argentinians, who were armed with anti-tank rifle grenades and protected in their rock bunkers. The Argentinians refused to budge. The guardsmen could hear some of them shouting obscene phrases in English and even singing the March of the Malvinas as they fought. Meanwhile, two Royal Naval frigates, HMS Yarmouth and HMS Active, were pounding tumble down with their four and a half inch guns. 
At one stage, Lieutenant Colonel Mike Scott of the Scots Guards thought the battalion might have to withdraw and attack again the next night. He said, The old nails were being bitten down a bit. If we had been held on tumble-down, it might have encouraged them to keep on fighting. The fighting was hard going for the left flank. The Argentinians were well dug in with machine guns and snipers. However, a second British assault overwhelmed most of the Argentinian forces. However, the survivors of one number four platoon would continue to fight on till about 7am. The British troops swarmed over the mountaintop and killed, wounded or captured several of the defenders, at times fighting with fixed bayonets. Major John Kisley, who was to become a senior general after the war, was the first man into the enemy position, personally shooting two Argentinian conscripts and bayoneting a third, his bayonet breaking in two, such was the force of his attack. Seeing their company commander among the Argentinians inspired 14 and 15 platoons to make the final dash across open ground to get within bayoneting distance of the remainder of number 4 platoon of the Argentinian Marines. Kisley and six other guardsmen suddenly found themselves standing on top of the mountain, looking down on Port Stanley, which was under street lighting and vehicles could be seen moving along the roads. The Argentinians now counterattacked and a burst of machine gun fire wounded three guardsmen, including Lieutenant Alistair Mitchell, who was commanding number 15 platoon. A bullet also passed through the compass secured on the belt of the left flank company commander, injuring Major Kisley. For his bayonet charge, Kisley was awarded the Military Cross. The Guards Museum is proud to display the compass, complete with bullet holes, in the museum. The Guards Museum is proud to have the compass complete with bullet holes on display in the museum. Also on display we have the medal struck to commemorate the Falklands War. It was actually called the South Atlantic Medal. The medal is made of cupra nickel and is 36mm in diameter. It was struck by the Royal Mint and issued by the Army Medal Office in Droitwich. It has the following design. The obverse bears the crowned effigy of the Queen facing to the right, with the inscription, Elizabeth II, by the grace of God, Queen and Defender of the Faith. The reverse has the Falkland Islands coat of arms, which bears the words, Desire the Right, an allusion to English explorer John Davis's ship, HMS Desire, a laurel wreath below and the words South Atlantic Medal. The initials, Surname, rank or rating, service number and unit of the recipient are diamond engraved on the edge of the medal. The 32mm ribbon has a central stripe of sea green, flanked on either side by stripes of white and empire blue, shaded and watered, symbolising the Atlantic Ocean. The design, attributed to Her Majesty the Queen, was based on the ribbon for the British Second World War campaign medal, the Atlantic Star itself devised by her father, King George VI. Also on display, we have a Compo 24-hour ration box. Made of cardboard, it carried, as its name suggests, the 24 hours worth of food for one man, composite rations. But this is no ordinary bit of cardboard waste. The box belonged to Pipe Major Jimmy Riddle of the 2nd Battalion Scots Guards. It was the only writing material he had to hand when he sat and composed the pipe tune, The Crags of Tumbledown.
after finding out that his buddy Danny White, who was one of the two battalion drill sergeants, had been killed in action during the battle for Mount Tumbledown. And so we now move from the snow and ice of the Falklands to the heat and dust of the Middle East and the two Gulf War crises. The first Gulf War, codenamed Operation Desert Shield, ran from the 2nd of August 1990 to the 17th of January 1991 for operations leading to the build-up of troops and defence of Saudi Arabia and Operation Desert Storm, which ran from the 17th of January 1991 to the 28th of February 1991. This was a war waged by the coalition forces from 35 nations led by the United States against Iraq in response to Iraq's invasion and annexation of Kuwait arising from oil pricing and production disputes. On the 2nd of August 1990, the Iraqi army invaded and occupied Kuwait, which was met with international condemnation and brought immediate economic sanctions against Iraq by members of the United Nations Security Council. UK's Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and US President George Bush deployed forces into Saudi Arabia and urged other countries to send their own forces to the scene. An array of nations joined the coalition, forming the largest military alliance since World War II. Most of the coalition's military forces were from the US, with Saudi Arabia, the United Kingdom and Egypt as leading contributors in that order. Kuwait and Saudi Arabia paid around $32 billion of the $60 billion that the war cost. The war marked the introduction of the live news broadcast from the front lines of the battle, principally by US network CNN. The war has also earned the name Video Game War, after the daily broadcast images from cameras on board USS bombers during Operation Desert Storm. The initial conflict to expel Iraqi troops from Kuwait began with an aerial and naval bombardment on the 17th of January 1991, continuing for five weeks. This was followed by a ground assault on the 24th of February. This was a decisive victory for the coalition forces who liberated Kuwait and advanced into Iraqi territory. The coalition ceased its advance and declared a ceasefire 100 hours after the ground campaign started. Aerial and ground combat was confined to Iraq, Kuwait and some of the Saudi Arabia border. The United Kingdom committed the largest ever contingent of any European state that participated in the war's combat operation. Operation Granby was a code name for the operations in the Persian Gulf. The British Army regiments, mainly with the 1st Armoured Division, along with Royal Air Force, Naval Air Squadrons and the Royal Navy vessels, were mobilised in the Persian Gulf. Both Royal Air Force and Royal Naval Air Squadrons, using various aircraft, operated from air bases in Saudi Arabia and naval air squadrons from various vessels in the Persian Gulf. The United Kingdom played a major role in the Battle of Norfolk, where its forces destroyed over 200 Iraqi tanks and a large quantity of other vehicles. After 48 hours of combat, the British 1st Armoured Division destroyed or isolated four Iraqi infantry divisions and overran the Iraqi 52nd Armoured Division in several sharp engagements. Chief Royal Navy vessels deployed to the Persian Gulf included broadsword-class frigates and Sheffield-class destroyers. Other Royal Naval and Royal Fleet Auxiliary ships were also deployed. 
several SAS squadrons were deployed, and whilst talking about the SAS, we might as well talk about G Squadron SAS. This unit was made up from guardsmen from all five of the foot guards regiments, and it was deployed in the Gulf War to disrupt enemy operations deep within enemy-held territory. We have an Arab form of dress, consisting of a brown burnous and a green shimag, which were worn by a guards officer serving with the SAS during the conflict. He brought them into the museum and handed them to my predecessor, David Horn. David asked him what his role was during his time with the SAS in the desert. He casually replied, We located and destroyed enemy aircraft on the ground. David asked, How successful were you? To which he laconically replied, Well, I'm here, aren't I? Operation Granby was the code name given to the British military operations during the 1991 Gulf War. 53,462 members of the British Armed Forces were deployed during the conflict. The total cost of the operation was £2.4 billion, of which at least £2 billion of that was paid for by other nations such as Kuwait and Saudi Arabia. Over £200 million worth of equipment was lost or written off by the end of the campaign. During the ground phase, the British 1st Armoured Division took part in the left hook which outflanked Iraqi forces and it participated in the Battle of Norfolk. As previously mentioned, British Challenger tanks destroyed approximately 300 Iraqi vehicles, including achieving the longest-range tank kill in the war from over three miles away. In November 1990, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Price, the regimental band of the Scots Guards set off to the Gulf to take part in Operation Granby. The band served in 33 field hospitals in Kuwait as medics on various wards as well as providing musical entertainment at the British Ambassador's residence. They also played for the repatriation of bodies as they returned home. We have a one-tenth scale model of the desert variant of the GKN Warrior Infantry Section Vehicle, which had a 25mm Bushmaster cannon, upgraded Delco LAV-25 turret, with twin TOW missile launchers on each side. For the uninitiated, TOW stands for tube-launched, optically-tracked, wire-guided missile. The 1st Battalion Grenadier Guards were the first British unit to be equipped with the Warrior in 1987-88. They were in action in the Gulf in 1991, where over 300 Warrior vehicles were sent there in six different variants. Also on display, we have an Iraqi Republican Guard drill cane. The black cane is about two feet long with a silver head. This was found on the Mutla Ridge in Kuwait in March 1991 by Guardsman Kevin Gorman of the Scots Guards, who was attached to the Army War Graves Registration Unit. We now move on to the Second Gulf War. Operation Telic was the code name under which all of the United Kingdom's military operations in Iraq were conducted between the start of the invasion of Iraq on the 19th of March 2003 and the withdrawal of the last remaining British forces on the 22nd of May 2011. The bulk of the mission ended on the 30th of April 2009, but around 150 troops, mainly from the Royal Navy, remained in Iraq until May 2011 as part of the Iraqi training and advisory mission. 
46,000 troops were deployed at the onset of the invasion, and the total cost of the war stood at £9.24 billion by 2010. Once again, Operation Telic was one of the largest deployments of British forces since World War II. It was only approached in size by the 1991 Operation Granby deployment. It was considerably larger than the 1982 operation in the Falkland Islands, which saw about 30,000 personnel deployed, and the Korean War, which saw fewer than 20,000 personnel deployed. Some 9,500 of the British servicemen and women who deployed on Optelic for the invasion and its aftermath were reservists from the Territorial Army and from the Royal Auxiliary Air Force Regiment. The word telic means a purposeful or defined action from the Greek telos. Unlike the United States, who called their equivalent military deployment Operation Iraqi Freedom, the Ministry of Defence uses a computer to generate its names so that they carry no overtly political connotations. The meaning was initially unknown, but as the initial planning took place over Christmas 2002, the term became jokingly known as the acronym TELIC, Tell Everyone Leave is Cancelled. We have on display the Optelic Medal. The medal is made of cupro-nickel and bears on the obverse the crowned image of Her Majesty. The reverse shows an ancient Assyrian Lamusu sculpture above the word Iraq. The one and a quarter inch wide ribbon is sand colour with three central stripes of black, white and red. These colours allude to the medals awarded for previous desert campaigns fought by British armed forces, such as the Cadiz Sudan Medal, 1892, the Queen's South Africa Medal, 1899, and the World War II Africa Star. Well, that's about it for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed hearing about the Falklands War and the two Gulf Wars. And although we didn't get much in the way of bearskins, I think General John Kisley's exploits on Mount Tumbledown more than tick the boxes for bayonets and bravery. Sadly, since the last episode, we've had it confirmed that to save money, the museum will remain closed until February next year. This means that we are looking at zero revenue for 2020. If anyone wishes to support the museum during these troubled times, you can either send a cheque to the museum or you can go to our website at www.theguardsmuseum.com and look for the Support Us button where you can make a donation. The team here join me in sending you our best wishes and we hope that you and your families remain safe and well. I have been Andrew Wallace. This has been episode 20 of Bearskins, Bayonets and Bravery, Notes from the Guards Museum. So, until next time, goodbye and God bless. Now, turn to your right and salute. Dismiss. Up, down and get away. <laughs>